told you we we're in week number six. You guys are amazing to have hung in here with us this long. I brought with you something very special to me. Um, this is a uh, uh, really a family heirloom, really. It's a pocket watch, has been in the family a long, long, long time. And, uh, you know, jeweled watches like this, um, they're not just your average type of watch that comes off of an assembly line, but jeweled watches um, are made by watchmakers who meticulously, they design and they make each part and they assemble those parts into a watch. But not this one, not this watch. That's not how it happened for this watch. Um, this watch actually... Um, I guess one of the reasons it might be special, it was formed, not by a watchmaker, but this was formed naturally on its own over the course of maybe three million years or so, not exactly sure, but the raw materials, the gold, um, the sapphires, the, the jewels, um, the diamond, I think there's one diamond maybe, all kind of uh, the, the gold for the gears, and it all just kind of formed over the course of time, and 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 eventually one part got added to the next, and this is the result, which is, I don't know, for me, quite impressive. Um, now, I realize, after saying that, that there's not one single person in the room who believes that. <laughs> I understand that. Um, and in fact, um, you look at this and you say, that's, that's just wrong. It's obvious that this was designed and put together by a watchmaker. And the reality is that you would not allow me to go next door to our 252 room or to our first look room. You would not allow me to go in there and present them that and teach them that as truth, as the way it really was. In fact, you probably wouldn't even let me present it as an idea. We're not totally sure, but this could have happened. You wouldn't let me do that in talking about this watch, but yet the hand that is holding this watch is so far more complicated than this watch itself. But yet we allow our children to be told that the hand was put together one cell at a time over the course of millions or billions of years. Now, I did not make up this example. This example goes all the way back to the guy who made it famous. It goes back even further than him. But the guy that made it famous, it goes all the way back to 1802. Two, a guy by the name of William Paley. But the example still applies today. You see, we do have two basic worldviews, two basic philosophies of how everything started. One philosophy says that it happened by chance, a combination of uh, natural events and natural selection over the course of billions of years. That's one worldview. And a second worldview says, no, no, no. It happened because there was an intelligent designer. You see, the first worldview, evolution tells us that somehow there was nothing and nothing grew. And nothing combined with other nothings, and eventually it exploded. And then from there, eventually, non-living things, non-living things, over the course of billions of years, became living things. 
And those things eventually became everything that we see, everything and everyone that we see around us. Many people believe that. In the past 150 years since the Origin of Species was first published, this has become the worldview of most schools and universities. It's interesting that parts of this theory are not even really able to be under the label of science. They're not in the realm of science because to be in the realm of science, it has to be able to be tested. And since it cannot be tested, many parts of this cannot be tested, it must wear the label of philosophy. But instead, it does wear the label of science. Now, do you know what it takes to believe? Here comes our first blank. Do you know what it takes to believe in the worldview of chemical and biological evolution? It takes faith. Plain and simple. It takes faith because it can't be proven, nor can it be disproven. So it takes faith. Now, since we were not there when everything began, since we weren't there, I, for myself, I'm going with the eyewitness, the eyewitness to creation, the creator himself, who had our origins meticulously recorded in the book of Genesis. You see, science and the Bible should not be a scary thing, because where science where there is a correct interpretation and understanding of Scripture, God's Word, and where there is a correct understanding and interpretation of science, those two things, guess what happens? They line up perfectly. The more we understand, I've been told, of quantum physics, then the more comfortable we can read Genesis chapter 1, where creation is found. The Bible describes it all as something that happened in six days. God describes this as, if we have a question, were these errors, lengths of time? No, nope. God describes this as six 24-hour literal days. We talked about that, I think, in week one, so you can go back and, and catch that. Now, we first encountered life as opposed to non-living matter. We first encountered life on day number three, and that was plant life, as God created that on a Tuesday. And God describes life as an instant creation of God. Last week, we talked about day number four. Uh, today, we are at day number five, which on the calendar of time here was a Thursday, creation day number five. Now listen to how God describes Day number five. It's in Genesis chapter one, verses one through, I'm sorry, verses 20 through 23. It says, Then God said, Let the water swarm with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created large sea creatures and every living creature that moves and swarms in the water. And he did that, it says here, according to their kind. He also created every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Verse 22. So God blessed them. So God now speaks to these living things. He blessed them and here's what he said. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters of the seas and let the birds multiply upon the earth. That's what he said. And again, here as we read this, God's description of this event, of this day, it was instant creation. With God as the designer, He begins this whole thing by de designing on this day very specific kinds of sea life and very specific types of things that fly in the air. All in one day, as only an all-powerful God could do. You see, God on this day does not share credit with 
a slow evolutionary process. He doesn't share that credit. This worldview of creation, the one I just read to you in the Bible, this worldview of creation as we find it in the book of Genesis, it cannot be proven, nor can it be disproven. So do you know what it takes to believe in the Genesis account of our origins? It takes faith. That's what it takes. Plain and simple. It takes faith to believe in the origins that we find in Genesis. And through this process, as we have read it, starting with Genesis 1-1, God has moved from a very vast and a very general type of creation where He was creating all of space, all of earth, all of water and atmosphere, and then dry land, oceans and seas. And now God is moving toward the very specific, from the general, the very specific, and He's creating types of sea creatures. He created on day three types of plants. Now types of sea life and types of flying animals. And God says they were all created by Him. And it takes faith to believe that. So this morning, we're going to progress through this series by by looking and talking about some of the challenges to the worldview, the philosophy called evolution. We're going to talk about some of these challenges. By no means can we talk about them all. We can't even scratch the surface. But we're going to talk about a few. I'm going to mention a few. Some of these are not often discussed. We're going to mention a few of these as we progress. So, here's the first one. Evolution. It is a philosophy that has become a religion. And you say, wait a minute, Harley, that sounds really like you're making a big old judgment call there. Well, I'm not. Uh, We all have the, the tendency, we all have the tendency to avoid knowledge and avoid opinions that threaten our own worldview. So perhaps, depending on what you believe about creation, if you hear things about evolution from the news, that can feel threatening to you. If you believe uh, about uh, Darwin's style of evolution, when you hear about things that we teach about the Bible and Genesis, that could be threatening to you. We all have that ability to be threatened when our worldview is threatened. And here's the reality. Scientists are no different. For many scientists, not all, not all, but for many scientists, There are no theories that are inconsistent with atheism that are allowed to be discussed in their classrooms or in their papers or in their research. They shut them down. They refuse to allow them. Now, a well-known professor at the Florida Florida State University, Michael, uh, I think you pronounce his last name, Roos. I'm not exactly sure on that, but Michael Roos, Um, He is a philosopher of science who also happens to be an atheist. Florida State University. Here's a direct quote from Michael Roos. Evolution is promoted as more than science. That's what Michael Roos says. Evolution is promoted as a secular religion. And please understand, this is Michael Roos, philosopher of science. He is an atheist. Evolution, he says, is promoted as a secular religion, a full-fledged alternative to Christianity. He says evolution is a religion. He says that was true of evolution in the beginning, and it is true of evolution still today. Now concerning the evidence, of evolution, cell biologist uh, Franklin Harold listened to what he said. He said, we should reject as a matter of principle 
the substitution of intelligent design. That would be creation, a creator. He said we should reject, as a matter of principle, the substitution of intelligent design for the dialogue of chance. And when he says the dialogue of chance, he's referring to a chance evolution. Things occurring by chance and creation happening over the course of billions of years. He said, he said we should not accept a conversation about a divine origin. We should reject that and we should instead have a conversation of the evolution of chance. Now he says this even though he has also said this next statement. He said this, we must concede there are presently no detailed Darwinian accounts of evolution of any biochemical or cellular system. He said there are no accounts of any details of a Darwinian style evolution. And he ends it by saying, we only have a variety of wishful speculations. S.C. Todd put it simply. He said, even if all the data point to an intelligent designer, he said, such a hypothesis is excluded from science because it is not naturalistic. In other words, it is not something that happened by nature itself by chance over the course of time. He said even if all the data were to point to an intelligent designer, we cannot accept that because it is not evolution. So our first challenge basically says this. Chance evolution or evolving by chance, has moved beyond science. And over the past 150 years, it has become a worldview, an ideology, a religion presented as an alternative to Christianity. That's our first challenge. Here's our next. We're shifting gears. Hang in here with me. The unguided chance steps of chemical evolution and biological evolution. So here's what we're getting ready to talk about. We're getting ready to talk about this series of steps that were taught that happened over the course of billions of years. Tiny little steps over all of that time. So our, our phrase here is, our challenge to this, our, 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 where we're saying this, this is not making sense to us, the unguided chance steps. In other words, there is no creator guiding any of this process. It is all by chance. The steps of chemical evolution, the steps of biological evolution. So you hear talk of this thing called this primordial soup. Have you ever heard the phrase? So sometime after the Big Bang, um, the earth was found to be of the perfect condition for this primordial soup of non-living matter to begin to develop life. So we're talking about these unguided steps of evolution. Now, this world that they're talking about, let me give you some information that needs to exist on this earth at this time. There can be no oxygen on the earth. Because oxygen present on the earth would mean that some of the very specific chemical reactions that must take place in order to produce life cannot take place because oxygen stops the process. So this primordial soup earth, there can be no oxygen. The second thing that has to exist, now if there is no oxygen, that means you hear talk of the ozone layer and how it's decreasing. If the ozone layer is not there, it does require oxygen. So if there is no oxygen, there is no ozone layer, which means the ozone layer, of all the things it may do, one thing it does for sure is it helps filter some of the ultraviolet rays from the sun so that we don't, uh, so that we don't walk outside and, and burn. 
so we don't roast. Now, so if this world has no oxygen, it means there's no ozone layer either. It means we are getting, the world is getting a full dose of the ultraviolet destructive rays from the sun. Unfiltered. Now that's a problem. Because not only does oxygen stop the chemical processes that need to happen in evolution, so does the ultraviolet rays from the sun. They do the same thing. They stop it. So we have a scenario where nature has to figure out, not a creator, nature has to figure out non-thinking nature, non-living nature has to figure out how to create an oxygen-free environment, an uh, uh, a, uh, uh, ultraviolet ray-free environment, or at least much less, so it would be filtered, need to be filtered. So they have to figure out how to have no oxygen, how to filter the ultraviolet rays. Oh, yeah, I forgot too. Uh, they also have to figure out how in that primordial soup there can be no water. Because that also stops, water also stops some of the chemical reactions that need to take place in order for us to create, create life from non-living matter. Do you understand we have a problem? Somehow, non-living matter has to figure out, called nature, has to figure out how to do away with all those things. We, we have a problem with that step. The next thing that nature has to figure out, nature has to figure out how to produce from nothing four chemicals that are going to make up DNA. Nature has to figure that out. Nature then has to figure out how to add to that two very specific, create and add to that two very specific sugars. And then nature has to figure out how to combine the DNA chemicals, how to combine those chemicals and combine them with the sugars and add to that some phosphoric acid and put those in a very specific order on a very long chain using an alphabet of four. And then nature has to figure out how to duplicate that long chain of information. Then nature has to figure out how to make 20 different amino acids and not using an alphabet of four, but using an alphabet of 20. And then nature has to figure out how to combine all those amino acids, very specific amounts and very specific ones with other amino acids to form what are called protein machines. And there are, and we're talking about developing one living cell from the primordial soup. And that one living cell is going to have two to four million, two million to four million protein machines. And when I use the word machine, I'm not using that figuratively. It is an actual biological robot machine. This is crazy. But every one of your cells has two to four million of those. They're called proteins. Now, we still have more to do. Nature now has to figure out how to write code. How to write programming language. Programming language for all of those amino acids and all of those protein, two to four million protein machines, they have to figure out how to write code because next we're going to make another cell and it has to write code so it can program that how to do that. Now, if that weren't enough, nature has to figure out how to separate all of that activity from everything around it. Because eventually there will be a lot of water. Eventually there will be a lot of oxygen. And it will kill 
all the processes that have to happen in order to have that cell duplicate. So it has to figure out a way to encase all of that activity in some kind of surrounding membrane so that it can do what it needs to do to duplicate and have life. All right, that's a lot of steps. And obviously, I have uh, just summarized those to the level that I can understand them, (laughs) which means there's a lot more. Because I don't understand it. You've heard me mention, you've heard me mention the second law of thermodynamics. Every field of science takes that as a natural law and applies that principle, that truth, to their field. They claim it as true. That law is also called the law of entropy. Do this, has to figure out how to do this, has to figure hearing out by nature that I just talked about. Nature has to figure out how to do this, has to figure out how to do this, has to figure out how to do this. All of that figuring out, all of those steps it has to go through violates the second natural law of thermodynamics. So that means it could not have happened that way. Simply put, that law of entropy, the law, the second law of thermodynamics, here's what it means in a, in a simple, hardly way to understand. All things move from order to disorder. In other words, everything is winding down. They do not, on their own, move from disorder to order. In other words, you washed your car yesterday perhaps. In a few weeks, your car is going to be dirty again. It moves from order being washed to disorder being dirty. It will not by itself get clean, even if it rains, right? Don't have the rain dirty drops on it, right? It moves from order to disorder. You throw a ball Football season right now. You throw a ball, it goes fast, it slows down, and eventually it falls. Everything, that ball's not going to go forever. Everything is winding down. You pour a cup of coffee in the lobby. You set it down in your cup holder. Before you leave, it will be room temperature if you leave it. Everything goes from hot toward colder bodies where it stabilizes. That is the law of entropy. Students, you clean, uh, in a dream world, you clean and straighten your your room. And within just a few days, it's messy again. It moves from order to disorder. And every field of science, we've said this to you before, every field of science recognizes the law of entropy except one field, biology. Evolution says that things on their own can move from disorder to order. From non-living rocks and matter with no cells, With no DNA, non-living matter can become living with cells and DNA. It moves from a state of disorder to a state of order. That's what evolution says. It moves from non-living to something that is alive and living and functioning with cells and, and, and heredity and DNA. And all of the fields universally admit this physical law of entropy and they say, yes, this applies to us. Yes, this applies to our field. But the philosophy of evolution ignores it and they say, yeah, it, it does apply to them. It just didn't apply in this case to us. 
for the living cell, which God created on day three with plants, and then again the living cell, which God created on day five with sea life and with flying animals, each living cell requires a complex system to all be in place at one time, at the same time, in order for that cell to live. You see, cells can't live for millions and millions of years waiting on part of the system to be added, waiting on that next system to be added or to evolve or to develop. They can't live for millions and millions of years while they're waiting on parts to come together. For a living cell, they must all be in place at the same time, all functioning together at the same time, which means to me it had to be instant. All on day number one for the creation of that cell, it had to all be there. That's the only way a cell can live. There's something about dead cells. Dead cells don't grow. Dead cells don't develop. Dead cells don't put systems together. Dead cells don't reproduce. All the cell systems must be in place all at the same time. You see, a cell can't just kind of limp along, just kind of living halfway, because it only has half of its systems that it needs. No. It can't do that just waiting on all the other systems to develop over the course of millions of years. It can't do that. Listen to what Sir Fred Hoyle, who is also an atheist, listen to what he said. He calculated the chance of obtaining the required set of enzymes that a cell is going to require. One cell. One single cell. And one set of enzymes that that cell will require. Listen to what he said. The chance is that that could happen by chance. It was 1 in 10 to the 40,000th power. That is a 1 followed by 40,000 zeros. Now, let me put that in perspective for you. Do you know how many, do you remember, we've mentioned this, how many atoms there are in our entire universe? It is estimated by scientists, the number of atoms in the entire universe do you remember how small an atom is? The number of atoms is in the entire universe is 10 to the 80th. That's an 8 and a 0. 10 to the 80th power. Sir Fred Hoyle said the chance of creating just the enzymes, that one, gathering them together, not creating them, just gathering them together, the chance of doing that for one single cell is 1 in 10 to the 40,000th. There's not a person alive that, can, that I'm aware of that can, can understand how big that number is. We can't understand 10 to the 80th. And he said it's 1 in 10 to the 40,000th. Wow. Here's what else Hoyle said. Remember, he's an atheist. He compared the likelihood of one random cell developing in this primordial suit. Just one cell. The likelihood. Here's how he put it in word pictures for us. He said the likelihood of that happening is compared to a tornado sweeping through a junkyard. And as it passes through, the end result is it assembled the 747 from the materials. That's what Hoyle said. He's an atheist. This is what I, 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 this is his take on the likelihood of that happening. 
He goes on, Hoyle also compared the chance of uh, even a single cell having a single, one single functioning protein machine. How many did I say we have? Two to four million. He said the likelihood of having one functioning protein machine. He compared it to a solar system, which would be like the Milky Way. Full, a solar system full of blind men. I, I, I saw you raise your head. <laughs> full of blind men trying to put together at the same time each of them a Rubik's Cube simultaneously. That's the likelihood of just creating one, <laughs> one protein machine. At least that's what, that's what Sir Fred Hoyle says. Let's look deeper in for just a moment. We're almost done. We're, we're finishing up. Hang in here with me. Don't, don't let me lose you. Let's look deeper into the cell for just a moment again at the DNA. See, DNA is made up from chemicals. DNA is, um, um, let's see who's in the back. Hey, Reagan, are you back there? Stephanie, would you grab me a book off that bookshelf and bring it to me? Any, any book, any book. DNA is made from chemicals, uh, very specific chemicals, and not a whole lot of them, just a handful. We know the chemicals that DNA, um, uh, that comes together to form DNA. Thank you so much. Great selection. We know the chemicals that make up DNA. We know what they are. So we kind of know how DNA is formed. DNA contains a lot of information, though. We're, we're not so up on that. But we do know what DNA is made from, but we don't know how DNA works. So here, let me give you an example of what, of, of what that's like. It's like this book. Thank you, Stephanie. It's like this book. We know from what this book is made. Basically two things. It's made from paper. And this book is made, I don't know if you can see that, it's made from ink. This book is made from paper and it's made from ink. We know what this book is made of. But knowing what it's made of tells us nothing about what's inside of the book. We just know what it's made of. Does that make sense? Knowing what it's made of, paper and ink, does not tell us anything about the information inside of the book. The information inside of the book is coded information. It's coded. What we know about chemicals and ink and paper tell us nothing about the coded information page after page inside of this book. DNA is very similar to that. We know what DNA is made from, but we don't know about the information inside of DNA. Because... Like our alphabet here, as I look at this page, DNA has its own alphabet. It has its own language. Each of these letters in this book, each one, has a shape and a form. And for us, as we speak that letter, they have said, this letter is this shape. And it's this form, this is what it looks like, and it sounds like this. And you put those together and here's how those letters work together and they form words. Someone decided that. Someone assigned each one of these letters, each one of these, they, they assigned them a shape, they assigned them a, a sound, they assigned them a meaning. And when you take this letter and this letter and this letter, 
those three letters together have this shape, this sound, and here's what those three letters, when you find them together, here's what they mean. Someone created that did not just happen, right? We're all in agreement. This in this book did not just happen. Someone decided what. <laughs> wow, I can't read that. Thanks, Stephanie. <laughs> Someone decided. Here's the word works. Someone decided what the W looks like, what it sounds like, what it's like when you put it next to the O, what that looks like, the R, the K, the S. And they decided when those. One, two, three, four, five words are together in that order. Here's what that word is. Here's how you pronounce it. And here's what it means. We, did, we, we didn't just stumble upon this. Somebody created this language. It makes it a digital language. Because it's very specific. Each thing means there's not, there's not a letter between A and B. Does that make sense? It's digital. Each one, boom, 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 boom. And here's what you put them together. Here's what it means. Here's what it means. Okay. So just knowing about the ink that makes up that and the paper that makes up the page doesn't help us at all with the meaning. Same thing with DNA. I think we could agree that there is no language on this earth that has happened by chance. Somebody with every language decided what each part means, what it looks like, what it means. They, and that means this too to me. That the language of DNA, it is a language, it is a code, it is coded language. The language of DNA, which contains all the information for our life, how life works. The language of DNA, someone decided what each part looks like, what it means, our coded language in our DNA has an intelligent designer. Now, before we leave, we have to mention the fossil record. The fossil record that can be so terrifying to people as they read Genesis the fossil record does not support chance evolution. And the evolutionist claims, well, it's just because the fossil record is not complete. There are parts missing to the fossil record. But even if a fossil record is not complete, we should find abundant evidence of the gradual, slow, branching, changing process from one species moving to the next, to new body types, to new parts. But instead, we get no viable precursors in the fossil record. And then you know what happened, strangely? Suddenly, in the fossil record, there is this set of body types, animals, and suddenly, in the fossil record, in the what they call the Cambrian explosion, suddenly there's many more types that are added to the fossil record. As if it were instantly highly distinct new body plans types found in what they call the Cambrian explosion now here's the deal skeptical paleontologists people who look at dead bones they'd be like well, okay well where are these key fossils that would link us from here to here 
where are these key fossils that would prove to us, in our thinking, Darwin's theory is correct? Where are they? Because they're saying you, you wouldn't get an abrupt change. Here's what it looks like, and now here's what it looks like. He said you wouldn't get that. No appearance of something new suddenly there. There would be a slow process. There would be a, a little steps along the way. You would see that. You know, according to Darwin's evolution, we should not find just a handful, which that's all it is, a handful of questionable fossils. We should not find that. We should instead find millions and millions of distinct, distinct transitional forms. Even if there's only a fraction of the fossils remaining, there should be in that selection body parts, types, all along the scale of evolving. And the average evolutionist, they've created answers for these problems. But I think really the reality is in the end it's just a hopeful smoke screen. And the ending answer is almost always this. We just haven't found them yet. We've got to be patient. We've got to keep looking. We just haven't found them yet. Let me read you another quote here. The world-recognized, award-winning biochemist, Maddie Lasola. I know I'm mispronouncing his name. He's Finnish. Listen to what he says. He says, I am now convinced that Darwin's theory won out. And when he says won out, he's meaning won out over uh, in the universities and in schools. It won out. It's, it's what they're teaching, he says. I am now convinced that Darwin's theory won out, and he's saying over intelligent design, because it fills a need. He says, scientism, in other words, that's what we talked about, that worldview, that religion, that philosophy. He said, scientism as a worldview with its allegiance to biophical materialism. And here's what he says, with its allegiance to a by chance, with no divine help, by chance evolution. That's what he says. He said, scientism needs mindless evolution to be true. So the proponents of scientism, here's what they do, because they need it to be true, so the proponents of scientism continue to prop up mindless evolution, no matter how many contrary fossils, he says, slam against it. And a common response to the fossil record Because they have discovered no evolutionary way how a living cell could have originated apart from a creator. Their reaction is to call out patience. We just have to wait patiently until a purely evolutionary, naturalistic answer emerges. That's what they say. God. And they say, let's not grow impatient and, and start stuffing God into all these gaps. Don't put an intelligent designer in there. No, no, no. We just have to be patient. We haven't found the answer yet. Not right away, but we will. Don't go stuffing God into the gaps. Think about it like this. If you were to go across the ocean and go visit this amazing, for lack of a better word, I'm going to use the word monument, called Stonehenge. Have you heard about that? The rocks, giant rocks, they're piled up on top of each other in very specific shapes. If you were to go walk around that circular formation of Stonehenge, and you have a small group of friends with you, and you turn to your friend, and you say, wow, man, man. I, 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 these people, whoever designed this, whoever built this, they certainly, next to no dummies. That's all you said. 
somebody standing next to you in another group, they heard you say that, and at that moment, that stranger turns to you, and they're like, oh, wait a minute now, wait, 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 wait a minute now. Don't go losing your heads. Don't start saying that to me that some ancient group of people actually found a way to haul all of these massive stones and stack them up in these things, and they hauled them for miles and miles and miles across the country to this precise spot. Don't, don't, don't go telling me that the origin of Stonehenge comes from those people. Surely there's some kind of naturalistic, evolutionary way that this came together. We just have to be patient. Patient enough to see what the answer is. Now, if you were listening to him say that, we would think to ourselves, what an odd way to approach him. What an odd way to approach that. For him to think that there must be, there has to be some kind of evolutionary way that that came together. What an odd way. Unless, unless for some reason he knew that it was not a person, that it was not a group of people, but he knew that there was certainly a natural evolutionary way that it happened. They just haven't worked out the details yet. But he knew that. But here's the case. He didn't know that. As you're looking at Stonehenge, it is quite obvious that it didn't happen by itself. We're not just trying to work out the details of how it happened by itself. It's quite obvious that it was put together. The simplest living organism, the simplest cell is vastly more complicated than Stonehenge. The stamp. Now, if something possesses the mark, the stamp of intelligence, the stamp of intelligent design, which means basically this, that there's some kind of sophisticated arrangement a sophisticated arrangement of all the parts that come together and together they accomplish a striking purpose. If something has the mark of intelligent design, one cannot rationally refute that it has a creator. And you can't refute it simply because if you were to admit it, it would make your worldview wrong. It really comes down to this. When someone claims that evolution has it figured out, they end not telling the truth. I'm going to end this morning with a quote. It's by a guy named James Tour. He's alive today. He is a leading origin of life researcher with over 630 research publications, over 120 patents related to his research. He was inducted into the National Academy of Inventors in 2015 listed as the world's most it uh, listed in the world's most influential scientific minds by Thomas Routers in 2014 and he was named scientist of the year by R&D magazine and here is how he recently described the field of evolution Listen to his direct quote. He said, We have no idea how the molecules that compose the living system could have been devised such that they would work in concert to fulfill biology's function. Those that say, Oh, this is all worked out. 
he says, they know nothing. Nothing about chemical synthesis. Nothing from a synthetic chemical perspective. He says, neither I nor any of my colleagues, any of my colleagues can fathom a prebiotic molecular route to the construction of a complex system. In other words, this, this primordial suit. We can't. We can't fathom any route that would actually work. He goes on. We can't even figure out the, the prebiotic routes to the basic building blocks of life. Forget the cell. We can't figure out how the building blocks work. Carbohydrates, nucleic acids, lipids, and the proteins. He said chemists are collectively bewildered. And here's what he says. Hence, I say that no chemist understands prebiotic synthesis of the, of the requisite building blocks, let alone the assembly into a complex system. He says this, his quote, that's how clueless we are. He said, I have asked my colleagues, and he says, these are who they are. He said, National Academy winners, members, Nobel Prize winners. I sit with them in offices. Nobody understands this. And here's how he ends it. So if your professors say it's all worked out, if your teachers say, this is all worked out, they don't, he says, they don't know what they're talking about. Here's the truth. Where you have a good, accurate understanding of science, it is going to line up perfectly with a good, accurate understanding of God's Word. Because God created it all. He created all the natural laws. God created science. And on the fifth day, God created sea, life in the sea. And He created flying animals. And I want to end with this. Romans chapter 1, starting with verse 18. But God shows His anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God. Because He has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God has made, they can clearly see His invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God. But they wouldn't worship Him as God. Or even give Him thanks. It says, like, they began to think up foolish ideas about what God was like. And I'm going to end with this phrase. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Let me go to verse 23. And instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. God says they're without excuse. This week, here's my challenge to you. My challenge is this. This week, will you learn? This week, will you study? This week, will you love the people around you? This week, will you seek a daily relationship with your Creator. Let's pray. God, us, God, thank You. You not only created us, God, but You redeemed us. God, You saved us. Your creation that rebelled against You. God, I rebelled against You. And You saved me.
And the same way you have saved me, Father, you have offered to save the world. And this week, may we invest time into getting to know you. You who created the world. You who redeemed the very world who rebelled against you. May we spend our time getting to know you this week. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, we ask. Amen.